Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Tom Gleason on the show, and we'll be discussing his new memoir, A Liberal Education. Some of you who listen to the show... Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host... Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm pleased to say we have Tom Gleason on the show, and we'll be discussing his new memoir, A Liberal Education. Some of you who listen to the show may know who Tom Gleason is. He was one of the first or second generation of American-Russian historians. He has had an esteemed career as a teacher and writer and administrator. And it's a particular honor for me to talk to him today because when I was in graduate school oh so many years ago, he was one of the people who I thought of as the elders of my field. Tom has seen everything and done everything and has watched Russian studies and the historical profession change over the years. And he's a lot of interesting things to say about the way history works, about the path of Russian studies, about the decline of the Soviet Union, and about many historians of whom you may have heard. So without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Tom. Hi, Marshall. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. How are you today? I'm quite well, thanks. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Today we have uh, Abbott Gleason on the show. Abbott goes by Tom, and so I'll be calling him Tom. Uh, He has written a really terrific memoir called A Liberal Education. I really enjoyed the book because it gave me a an understanding of a world that I didn't really know anything about. I'm from the Midwest, and Tom comes from a, quite a, a different background in, the, um, in, in New England in the, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And so that was interesting to me. And also, I should say that Tom is one of the oldest hands in the Russian studies industry. He was there at the creation, has a lot of really interesting things to say about its development. If you are interested in historiography, and particularly Russian historiography at all, this is definitely a book that you'll want to read because he describes the way in which this industry developed and then the emergence of certain personalities in it and how those personalities interacted. And this all in the midst of uh, his own life, which, you know, again, is something that happens when you're outside the office, and a lot happened to him, and uh, also in the midst of writing his own books, and he has a great number of them, and we'll come to talk about those in due time. But anyway, it's just a great honor to talk to him today. He's somebody that I read in graduate school, and I thought of as many graduate students do, as a kind of a demigod, and so for me, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's really quite a, quite a, quite an honor and a privilege to, to talk to him today. And I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. As I say, it's a autobiography, so we will, unlike on many episodes of New Books in History, we will simply um, trace the path or trail of Tom's <clears throat> life, and we'll ask him to do it for us. So let, <laughs> let me begin with what is probably the obvious question. Uh, where and when were you born? I was born uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, in the summer of 1938. 
the hurricane, the great hurricane year, and my my mother was the daughter of the English historian at Harvard, uh, Wilbur Cortez Abbott, and my father was a young assistant professor who was not getting tenure. And I guess for our academic audience, uh, that's that's a, 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 an evocative beginning. Mm-hmm. And and um, basically, what happened is that right around the time that I was born, Amherst College succeeded in getting my father to come there with tenure, and so my arrival on the scene coincided with his decision to do that most difficult of all things in my family, leave Cambridge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about that because uh, one of the things that comes forward in the autobiography is the connection that your father and I suppose uh, grandfather as well, your entire family really has to Harvard as an institution. I think it's something that is now past. I don't, I don't know anybody who has that kind of if not Cambridge or then the nowhere kind of attitude. How, how, how did they come to have this, this um, uh, fealty for um, Harvard? Well, Marshall, I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure you're, you're right about that, but uh, at, at my age, uh, I don't really know. I think, um, I think Cambridge uh, in the late 1940s, and maybe even before that, in the late 1940s and 1950s and 60s, came to be regarded as a sort of paradise for liberal intellectuals. And I think the only rival really was Berkeley a little bit later, although Columbia and New York also had some of that same magic. A place where intellectuals and scholars uh, could could be at home and could realize themselves fully and could be the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons I mention it is that uh, I've read um, Richard Pipes's. It's not exactly an autobiography; it's really a memoir, and he talks a little bit about this attitude when he came to Harvard in the 1950s, that um, people felt a, a kind of a special attachment to the place, and, and I guess that your family did. I mean, you say that you you had your grandfather was a professor in the history department, and your father was a uh, aspired to be a professor in the history department, and so did you. Really, I, did you really kind of grow up in the area between Amherst and Cambridge? Is that right? Well, I guess that's. Uh, I started uh, growing up there, and I. I'm sure I would have grown up there entirely had it not been for the coming of World War II, uh, because my father, like so many other academics, uh, basically took a leave of absence from his academic job and went. Uh, either into the army or in, or to Washington, and in fact, my father did both. And he ended up, on account of his age, he was a little old for active service. He ended up in OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Mm-hmm. So Washington, I I got to Washington quite early in in, in my life, and also spent a lot of time there. Mm-hmm. And where did you? I know Washington a little bit. I lived there for a time. Where did you live in Washington? Where's your family? Oh, we had a great house. It, the, the house wasn't much. It was just a small, dark row house. But it was on the corner of 31st and R Streets, right across from the 
front front entrance to Dumbarton Oaks. Oh yes, no, I know exactly where it is. For those of you that don't know what Dumbarton Oaks is, why don't you say a few words about that esteemed institution? More Harvard, actually. Well, Dumbarton Oaks was given to Harvard by a foreign service officer from a quite wealthy family named Robert Woods Bliss. And it was a, a lovely estate with beautiful formal gardens and uh, most wonderful of all, a swimming pool uh, where over the, over many years I swam both legally at, at invitation and illegally as a kid when we used to sneak into the place, climb over the walls and go swimming quickly and get out late at night. Mm-hmm. And so while your father is working in the OSS, um, uh, your mother and uh, the kids set up house there across from Dunbarton Oaks, uh, and you started to go, uh, and you went to school. You went to um, St. Albans School, is that right? That's right. Right, and could you say a little bit about St. Albans? It's quite well known, I guess, nationally, yes, actually, really. Actually, yeah. It, yeah, at first I went to, uh, I went to the feeders. I went, to, I went to public school kindergarten at first. Uh, and then I went to the theater for St. Albans, a, a school with the somewhat exotic and perhaps slightly pompous name of Beauvoir. <laughs> and it was only later that I sort of came back and, and went to went to St. Albans. Uh, but it was it, this was all in the sort of small world of Episcopal and Anglican private school education. So. Uh, although I was uh, a very difficult child for a variety of reasons, uh, I, I lived in a very restricted and uh, church-centered world, I would say. Mm-hmm. And what was – I think that – I don't think it's inappropriate to call St. Albans a, a, a prep school, uh, but it's not – again, this this world is – I don't know if it's largely gone, but it, I, I've never met it. Uh, what, what was it like going to a place like that? In the, this would be the 1950s then? Well, yeah, I, I, this, this was really when, when I came back uh, in, in 1950 after a brief interlude in, in, back in Cambridge again after the war. Uh, well, I was, uh, I was a very, a very uh, assertive, spoiled uh, kid, and um, this was, uh, I suppose, an ideal arena to shape me up a little bit. Uh, it was... It was used to kids like me, and it was used to trying to do something about them by way of hazing and uh, occasional public shaming, and uh, generally took the attitude that uh, cracking down was, if it wasn't done in to excess, was the best way to go. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I, I, I was in trouble for a number of years at the school. Uh, I was not deferential to teachers. I couldn't keep my mouth shut. I was in fights all the time. Uh, but I think ultimately the school uh, was was good for me. I think probably Wilson High School, which was the public school alternative, would have been a little tough for me, but that might have been even better. Mm-hmm. But my, my parents were uh, devoted to the idea that they wanted the best possible education for their kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So do you, uh, th- this is sort of an evaluative question, but do you have fond memories of the place? Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, I do, actually. Uh, I, I have 
I think my memory, I have keen memories of it. And some of the memories that in retrospect I'm fond of are memories of the time I was not so fond of. Uh, sort of private fights after school, uh, conflicts with teachers, uh, being put on probation, uh, but also learning learning to love modern art, uh, learning to channel my disruptive energies into political liberalism, and of course, ultimately, first dates, uh, social life with girls, and all those things. Mm-hmm that are so important. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like quite an experience. So let's move forward a little bit then. Y- y- your, what does your father do? Um, what does your family do after the war? Does your father remain in the OSS, or what does he do? Well, my father was interestingly involved, <clears throat> although not as a principal figure, in the founding of the CIA. He, he worked for in OSS for General William Donovan, Wild mm-hmm. Bill Donovan. Wild Bill Donovan. And he was, in fact, uh, in addition to his other responsibilities uh, on the Intelligence Committee, he was one of Donovan's writers. He was one of the two guys who wrote Donovan's stuff up. So he was the the person, I I, I believe I'm right on this, I did some research, uh, who wrote wrote up Donovan's memos to Roosevelt. Uh, And the key issue in which... Donovan was involved was that if an intelligence organization was was maintained after the war, as Donovan believed it should be, and my father as well, uh, it should it should report to the president and not to Congress. Uh, I think <clears throat> my father had perhaps a bureaucrat's view of of Congress as being far less reliable. Uh, than the executive branch, uh, so he 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 took he took Donovan's words and and put them in into the form in which they re- reached the president's desk. Mm-hmm. After after all that was over, <clears throat> and the CIA came into existence, uh, my father went with William L. Langer of the Harvard History Department, with whom he'd worked at OSS back to Cambridge, where he became for four years a fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations. And in in that capacity, he and Langer wrote two volumes on the American entry into the Second World War, the challenge to isolation and the undeclared war. Two very good, if I do say so myself, volumes of diplomatic history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So was it was it at this time that you decided that you wanted to... Um study history or I mean you were definitely on to college but did you did you Oh by no means <clears throat> I had no idea of studying history and <clears throat> in fact I was usually in conflict with my father about <laughs> practically everything uh, and uh, I was sure that I I didn't want to be like him uh life does surprise people and how uh yeah no, I, I I didn't. I had I had no idea what I what I did want to be, uh, but I I didn't want to be a sort of cultivated Anglophile gentleman like mm-hmm. as I imagined my father was, mm-hmm. and uh, I had something. I, I wanted to be a highwayman or uh, 
uh, a chainsaw murderer or something of that sort. But I, I was, it was quite unspecific at that stage. Uh-huh. So were you, uh, uh, you, so you had a kind of a mixed record as a, you were obviously a good student in high school and then you go on to college at Harvard, right? Yes. Yes, that's right. And um, what, was the decision to go there easy for you, or uh, was it hard, or how, how did you make it? Well, I I had no real idea about what Harvard was like. Uh, I think the most difficult thing was in deciding to go to the college that my father set such great store by, because I I, I think I was anxious about seeming to accept his judgment, something which I didn't do very much of at the time. Uh, But I had an idea that I was beginning to feel a little bit like an intellectual by the time I was in the 11th or 12th grade. And I had an idea that Harvard was probably uh, a good place for me. Uh, I applied to Harvard, Yale, and Brown. shows you how insular I was. Nothing south of New Haven or <laughs> north of north of Harvard Square. Uh, I didn't get interested in places like the University of California or Washington University in St. Louis. Yeah. Uh, first-rate institutions until much later in my life. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah, yeah. But again, I think it's a you know it's an interesting world to 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 to, to, to learn about for me because it's now people cast their net much more widely. Let's put it. That my way. insularity. Yeah can hardly be imagined by a normal person. <laughs> so what was your impression of, of Harvard? This is Harvard in the, uh, I guess it's the mid, mid to late 50s, right? Yeah, this is Harvard in 1956. Yeah, and what was it like then? I mean, I think that uh, I, I've, I really have no idea. You're going to have to tell me. Well, one of the things that I think would strike anybody uh, in college today or very recently is how physically austere it was. Uh, the sorts of rooms that kids at Brown have now, and that's that's where I am, uh, and the sort of rooms that people at Harvard now have are way, way different from the very sort of limited furnishings and these dirty floors and uh, the occasional uh, damaged walls uh, and the lack of furniture and other amenities that we had at Harvard in the in the fifties, and the food, uh, the food that students get today, which they complain a lot about, <laughs> is vastly better than the the awful stuff that we were served in in the nineteen fifties. I mean, the the term mystery meat was coined for something which was somewhere between. God, I don't know. Between hamburger and uh, uh, meatloaf, or or some, I mean, you could tell it was meat, but you you had no idea whether it was hard to believe that an animal could actually have produced this. Uh, and 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 you know, also of course, it, it was it was much more formal. We had still to wear. Uh, ties at, 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 uh, in the dining room, stuff like that. The master of Elliott House, where I spent the, my final three years of Harvard, uh, was uh, a very sort of upper-class, rhetorical, uh, 
person who 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 idolized Oxford and Cambridge and uh, was taught the literature of classical antiquity. And it was and it was it was it was both traditional and in a certain sense very cosmopolitan and worldly, but very upper class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it was the sort of world that I I took for granted then on mm-hmm. the basis of my background, and uh, I only gradually realized what an exotic place Harvard in the 1950s, especially perhaps Elliott House, mm-hmm. where, where I lived, actually was. Mm-hmm. And what was intellectual life like there? Did you, did you feel as if you... Uh, or among the best and the brightest, or well, I, I loved my cohort, and I learned a tremendous amount from the students that I met there. Uh, and I had uh, ten roommates, and we lived together in, in uh, several adjoining suites. And uh, among the most important things for me personally there uh, was not so much the faculty as the other students. And in particular, my introduction to students who were not Episcopalian, did not grow up in Georgetown, uh, and uh, were not Eastern upper-class kids. Mm-hmm. And in particular, I discovered uh, the, the world of Jewish intellectuals mm-hmm. when I was an undergraduate, and that turned out to be immensely important for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll come to talk about it. It's, it's funny you mention that because even as late as the um, 1980s, when I was an undergraduate, that was true. I had come from the Midwest. And I mean, I did know people who were Jewish, obviously. And But when I got there, it really was, uh, there was a, yeah, there was kind of a Jewish intellectual world that I, I, I didn't have entree to, but I, I learned about it at Grinnell College in Iowa, of all places. But in any event, uh, so uh, did, how did you come to study history and uh, Russian affairs at Harvard, and with whom did you study? Well, I, I, since my father was on the National Security Council, uh, the Cold War was a, a live topic in, in our household, and and had and a sort of interest in Russia went way back in 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 my family. My father was very anti-Russian, but quite interested in Russia. And as I gradually began to study Russia as an undergraduate, I discovered that I had a powerful attraction for Russian literature. So I I became a, a great lover of, of Dostoevsky and especially of Tolstoy. And it just so happened that in Elliott House, there was a whole cohort of interesting people involved with Russia. Uh, the great comparative literature specialist, Renato Pagioli, was there. Adam Ulam was there. James Billington was there. Martin Malia was a tutor. All of these were young academics at the time, uh, and they had uh, relatively close relations uh, among themselves, and they were happy to welcome in uh, undergraduates who wanted to sit and listen to them debate. Uh, and although I, I, I didn't have much serious connection with senior faculty uh, at Harvard as an undergraduate, I make an exception for, for those people uh, who were really, who, who had dinner very often at, at Elliott House and were very happy to, uh, to teach and to banter with and joke with and educate 
younger people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, we should also say at this time, Harvard was obviously an all-male establishment. That's correct. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Did you there have any – you know, a lot of people in college um, will uh, – people in college – dating is an important thing in college. I, I'm interested to know how you did that. <laughs> oh, I did it. I did it in, to some degree the hard way. Uh, I had a, a girlfriend for three years of college, but she went to Wellesley and and not and not Radcliffe, uh, so that uh, I had to make arrangements to get out there and back. So uh, I had uh, a motor scooter, <laughs> and, and this kicked off an involvement of sort of 20 years with motor scooters and small motorcycles, uh, which I loved riding on, and uh, even loved long trips like my first motor scooter would not go better than about 50 miles an hour. So although I would go back and forth between Washington and Cambridge, uh, I, I was not allowed on big highways, so I had to go back routes, mm-hmm. and I camped out, and uh, generally had had a wonderful time with, with, with my machine. But my girlfriend of that period is now a quite well-known uh, composer <laughs> of classical music named Elizabeth Verco. Uh-huh. But her maiden name was Hendry. Yeah. And her family lived in, uh, in, in Arlington, just over the Key Bridge from, from Washington, mm-hmm. where, where I lived. Yeah, no, I'm always interested to know exactly how those things were done in um, in, in in sexually segregated or gender segregated schools. I just – I don't have any – again, I have no impression of it myself, but it's interesting to know. That's actually kind of a trip out there to Wellesley. I don't know. How did you do it in January? Oh, I, we, we, we did it in January. We were we – wrapped, we wrapped up and, and, and sort of just gritted our teeth and – and I, I I I didn't like the windshield, so I didn't even have a windshield. <laughs> so so uh, occasionally we would uh, we 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 would take a tumble, but nothing very serious. The the worst fall I ever had was actually the year after I graduated, and I had a motorcycle, and I was studying at Heidelberg in Germany, and on the famous old bridge at Heidelberg, uh, it, I, I suddenly ran into a cloudburst uh, in 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 the winter. And it turned into ice very quickly, and I slid all the way across the bridge mm. uh, with my motorcycle sort of in my arms, and somehow managed to reach the other side without without being hurt. Cars were screeching to a stop. Uh, other cars were skidding and sliding, and I guess it was a minor miracle mm-hmm. that I didn't did not have somebody run over my leg or some other place. But uh, I, I was lucky over the over the time that I, I had bikes, uh, I never got into serious. I was never seriously injured. Well, thank God. So let, let's talk a little bit about. Okay, were you a good student at Harvard? I was not a particularly good student at Harvard. Uh, I, like many another kid who thought he was so damn smart, uh, I I didn't have adequate discipline. I had to learn about that. Uh, I didn't know what my interests were. Uh, I had a very interesting bunch of roommates who educated me, and, and I went in all sorts of different directions. I was discovering uh, left-wing politics. I was discovering uh, what the history of European radicalism. I was discovering occultism. Uh, I uh, 
and I, above all, I was discovering music and art. I continued to, I continued to, to paint all through Harvard, uh, and I had a studio in the basement of one of the Harvard houses, not Elliott House. Uh, so I, I filled my days with, with basically with what I wanted to do, and my record was very uneven. I got a couple of C's, uh, plenty of B pluses, some A's. Uh, but I was not a good student, uh, and and uh, I was uh, uh, I was a willful kind of character, I guess we would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. My my, I have to ask this question because my um, wife, who is a graduate of uh, Harvard College, uh, she said, "Ask him if Harvard was a liberal arts school in the 1950s," because she claims that when she went there in the 1990s, that it was not. I'm, I'm not sure I know exactly what she means. Yeah, not either. <laughs> by a liberal arts school. I, I, I can tell you I did liberal arts because that was what I wanted to do. Uh-huh. Um, but I, yeah, I, 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 guess, I guess I would say it, it certainly had a strong liberal arts component to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, you, you could certainly immerse yourself in sciences if you wanted to. But, of course, I had no such idea yeah. since, although I, I had good college boards, uh, I, I really couldn't do math. Yeah, I see. So then let's get you to Heidelberg. How did you get there? Well, everybody in, in my group of roommates wanted basically to go to Europe after we graduated and to... We were all very European-oriented and very oriented toward uh, left philosophy and musical modernism theater. And so we all applied for different fellowships. And uh, as an anecdote in the, in the memoir, I will re- take the risk of repeating it, uh, none of us had gotten anything when the first fellowships began to people began to, to, to get affirmative letters. And uh, John Finley, the, the master of Elliott House, whom I mentioned, came and sat down with us one night, and uh, when he found out that uh, we were, we, none of us had gotten anything yet, he sympathized, and he pointed at a guy at the next table named Dave Winter, who became, I think, a very good sociologist and taught in Michigan, and he said, well, gentlemen, when winter comes, can spring be far behind? <laughs> and that actually turned out to be right. We more or less, everybody got something. Uh-huh. Um, my, my, the roommate, my roommate, who was the biggest star, was the composer John Harbison. And he went to the Hochschule for Musik in Berlin. And uh, uh, one, of my, one of my roommates, two of my roommates had fellowships that took them to Oxford. One of them was a Marshall, and one of them got a Harvard fellowship. And uh, and I got a, a, a grant called a DAAD grant, Deutscher Akademischer Austauschdienst. And I went off to Heidelberg uh, to study the influence of German Romantic thought on 19th century Russian culture. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, was really a major field for me, and I've always been interested from, in it from that day to this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I think that's important. Did you, uh, the, the bravery of this, I think, needs to be emphasized. Did you know any German when you went? Uh, 
I did. Uh, I I had had three semesters of German, <laughs> and uh, that, uh, of course, was very little. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I did uh, I did find that my German improved rapidly when I was there. Mm -hmm. the, the only brave thing I did was to try to study uh, Russian and German and Polish <laughs> all in German at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and that is at the uh, at the outer boundary where bravery turns into foolishness. Yeah, I can, I can remember in graduate school um, uh, sort of writing myself reminder notes like, you know, go to the grocery store and, and you know, pick up the laundry and learn Polish. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, I had I, I studied Polish all through my time there and then I, I went and and visited Warsaw and, and stayed with my friend and, and my real mentor, I have to say, Andrzej Walitsky. Uh -huh. yeah. uh, in in Warsaw and then we also went uh went and sort of camped out in the and slept in the barns of country people in, in the Tatry Mountains near Zakopane. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, did you enjoy your time in Heidelberg? I guess you uh, were quite fortunate. I mean, you met uh, Walitsky there, is that right? No, I actually met Walitsky in, in my senior year at Harvard. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And he, and he, he was a, a very helpful presence for me. Anche was and is nine years older than, than me, so he was somebody that I could remotely consider a contemporary, but at the same time, really a young member of an older generation. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I was working with Jim Billington as my tutor my senior year and writing uh, an undergraduate honors thesis uh, that Billington had suggested on a very uh, fascinating but minor German intellectual of the Restoration period, an arch-conservative, somebody interested in magic and occultism as well as in religion, named Franz von Bader. And all my roommates had really neat topics for their honors work. Uh, Nietzsche's critique of liberalism, uh, the historiography of National Socialism. And only I had this peculiar topic, and when people would turn to me and say, and what's your thesis about? I would say it's <clears throat> it's about Franz von Bader. And this sort of silence would fall. And people would look embarrassed as if I'd broken wind or <laughs> sort of uh, sworn in some inappropriate way. And then they'd turn back and say, well, Nietzsche's critique of liberalism, gosh, that must be interesting. So but yeah. but when when Andrzej Walitsky came from Poland and spent a semester at Harvard, he knew exactly who who uh, Bader was, and was said, "Oh, what a great subject!" Uh, and then he looked at me and said, "But there's nothing on him in English." And I said, "You're telling me mm -hmm. everything was in German, French, or Russian." Mm -hmm. So my language studies proceeded basically through my through my honors thesis mm -hmm. and it was in fact probably a bit too hard for me but insofar as I really profited from it I was much too Valitsky as to Billington mm -hmm. I see so then after your sojourn in Heidelberg you, you decide and I'd be interested to know how you made this decision you decide to go to graduate school in history 
Yeah, you know, I think uh, I, I really, I really wanted to to be a painter at at this point, <clears throat> but I, I I wasn't sure about the the direction the painting was going in, and I and I thought, and I was probably correct, and my tastes were, although modernists were a little old fashioned, uh, I I don't know what I I would have made of myself if I if I'd tried it. Uh, but I, by this time, I, I knew that I was very interested in history, uh, especially cultural history. Uh, and uh, I made what I, I think was, for me, a, a safe decision that, that I would go to graduate school in history. But becoming a painter or an architect was always, that was always the road not taken, the thing that you might have done. Uh, the thing you're wistful about, the thing you're curious, you wonder what you would have been, what it would have been like if you'd done it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, you decide to go to uh, Harvard to do this. Why there? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, I I applied to to Harvard, Princeton, and Berkeley, and I was <clears throat> admitted to all three, uh, despite my my mixed record. And I think that my roommate's father, E. Harris Harbison, Jinx Harbison, uh, who knew me quite well, talked the Princeton History Department into admitting me. I might well have gone there. I probably sh that would have been a good place for me. Uh, and I was accepted with a fellowship at Berkeley. Uh, I was accepted at Harvard, but Harvard had seen me before, and they did not offer me a fellowship. And uh, I think they wanted, understandably, to know whether I was prepared to do some work for a change. Um, but, you know, again, in, in connection with the romance of Cambridge, I decided to go back to the place I knew. I think it would have been very good for me to go either to Princeton or Berkeley, uh, but that is, to put it mildly, water uh, over the <laughs> dam or under the bridge at this point. And so uh, you go to graduate school. Was that a, a kind of a shock? How was graduate school arranged then? I mean, did they have oh, like, classes and seminars and things like this? I don't know how it, was it worked. A, it was a terrible shock. Yeah. Um, you know, I sort of I thought of being a graduate student as being uh, a really a step towards becoming a faculty member. Uh, I, I had no idea... I had no idea of, of the of academic distinctions. I I didn't know the difference between a tenured Harvard professor and an assistant professor at Harvard, <laughs> which is sort of the difference between uh, Franklin Roosevelt and his chauffeur. Uh, and I, and I and I didn't know that most professors are much more interested in undergraduates. Than they are in graduate students who are who are thought by professors or were then to be sort of boring clones of oneself, whereas undergraduates are glamorous and interesting, and they're going to go off and do all sorts of things. They're going to make money, or invent things, or become pro football quarterbacks, or you know anything but somebody who is actually going to do what you, the professor, do. So the whole the whole question of, of the consciousness of, of professors of various ranks and the higher the actual hierarchies in academia I had I didn't have a clue about. So being a, a grad the you know 
being a graduate student is it involves drudgery. It just does. I don't, and I'm not sure there's any any way around it except for uh, geniuses, which <clears throat> I certainly was not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the most important thing about graduate school for me at first was that I finally learned to work. And, uh, you know, if you're going to do anything serious uh, of this, of the sort that we do, you have to learn to work. And graduate school frightened me into learning to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, of course, it threw me into contact with a very interesting crew of people at what is now the Davis Center for Russian Studies, was then simply called the Russian Research Center. And some of them were people that I'd known as undergraduates, a little bit like like Adam Ulam, uh, and some of them were uh, new people, uh, like the the great Alexander Ehrlich, mm-hmm. and uh, then graduate professors like Alexander Gershenkron, whom I deeply admired, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 many other characters. Mm-hmm. Now, who who was your nominal advisor? Who was your advisor there? A nominal advisor. Uh, my advisor was Richard Pipes. I always say, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I always say nominal advisor because it's been my experience that everybody has a, a nominal advisor and then there's somebody else back there. I don't know if that's true in your case. Oh, no, it was true. <laughs> uh, my, my mentor, I would say, I, I, I've, really, I've really had uh, three people who, who helped me and, and qualify as, as being mentors. Uh, Adam Ulam, who was very influential during my graduate career, and uh, James Billington, who taught me as an undergraduate and then hired me at the Kennan Institute later, uh, and Andrzej Walitsky, uh, who really helped me find out what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. Uh, Richard Pipes was a, a good advisor, and uh, he was directing my dissertation, uh, but we were we were not close, and uh, I wouldn't say that he had any influence on me in particular, except in one very important way. Uh, He knew that scholarship ought to be as meticulous and careful as you can make it, and my tendency was not to appreciate those virtues, and uh, Pipes, Pipes made me understand how wrong I'd been. So what did you decide to write about? What was your, what was your dissertation well, topic? Well, my, my, my dissertation, uh, I, I wanted to originally to write uh, a book of the sort that Andrzej Velitsky published somewhat later called The Slavophile Controversy. Uh, and I wanted to write about the influence of German romantic thought uh, on, uh, on Russian circles, on the Russian intelligentsia, and because I was so much in, in, under the sway of, of Walitsky and also of Martin Malia, whose biography of Herzen was the most influential book for me as a graduate student, I really wanted to work in the area that both of these people had been pioneers in, but particularly Walitsky. But I realized, uh, again, that I had an enormous amount of reading to do and that I wouldn't be prepared to to write something on the scale of Anche's book probably for eight or ten years. Uh, so I satisfied myself by working on a little corner of it, and I produced a study of the Slavophile Ivan Kirievsky uh, and his role 
in creating the ideology and practice of Slavophilism. And how did you go Which about? Was, I was going to say, how did you go about doing um, research on the topic? The Soviet Union being largely closed at the time. Yes, well, I wasn't able to to get anything uh, directly, but I uh, I went in the sum in the summer, two summers actually, uh, to Helsinki and worked in the Russian library there, uh, and uh, I had the good, uh, the good fortune to get to know a man named Eberhard Müller, uh, a German professor at Tübingen, uh, and he also produced an excellent book on Kirievsky, but he, he, he made available to me some of the microfilms that he'd managed to get from, from the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but basically, basically I, I wrote the book in, in libraries, mm-hmm. and it would have been uh, better for me if, if, I had, if I'd been able to, to work there but it was extremely difficult, especially on anything having to do with the intelligentsia, mm-hmm. to work inside inside the Soviet Union mm-hmm. in in uh, in the mid 1960s. Mm-hmm. And let, let me ask you this: Who were some of the other people in your graduate school cohort? Because uh, these are uh, these people all become the leading lights of um, of oh, Russian I had, studies. I, I, yeah. I had a wonderful cohort. Uh, they were really quite intimidating. They were so good. Uh, and uh, on the whole, we had really very good relations among ourselves, and uh, that was a, 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 a affirmative, thoroughly affirmative experience for me. Uh, well, there was Dan Field, who was probably my, my closest friend, almost certainly my closest friend among them. Robert Williams, uh, who wrote on, uh, basically, he wrote a wonderful book called Russian Art and American Money, and Wrote, he was also interested in uh, uh, topics of, uh, of an occult sort. Uh, and uh, um, Bill Rosenberg mm-hmm. uh, was another one. Uh, we, we were very friendly. And let's see. Uh, Nina, T- Nina Tamarkin mm-hmm. uh, was, was, a, was a close friend. She, uh, she was a, a little bit behind us, one, one might say she wasn't quite in our cohort. She was a bit younger, but uh, certainly remained a, a friend, an influential friend, and a very successful scholar mm-hmm. with her book on the Lenin cult mm-hmm. and on Russia's World War II experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll just leave it at that, but yeah, there, well, there, were a couple, there were a couple of others, but that... Those were those were the principal mm-hmm. people. Yeah, it's a, it's a it's definitely a good group. So uh, you're done with your dissertation at this point, and now it's time to find a job. This is something that strikes terror into the heart of every graduate student these days. In fact, oh, I was, there's I was a lot so of talk lucky. about it. So how how did that happen for you? I was so lucky. The year that I sort of went out looking for jobs, 1967, was the, in a way the last of the good years. Uh, there were still plenty of jobs, and things really began to sh- began to shut down uh, the next year and the year after. But um, basically, I had interviews and w- had interest expressed at Yale, uh, at Grinnell, and let's see, was on, and and Brown, and I'm trying to think. Oh, I'll tell you a story to illustrate how what a peculiar situation it was then when there were plenty of jobs. I knew a, a woman in the, a girl I, I, I would have said, of course, who worked in the admissions office, and she told me one day that 
a, a representative of the University of Wisconsin system was coming uh, to interview uh, students at Harvard for, for jobs there. And, uh, but unfortunately, there was no job at Wisconsin-Madison. There was a job at Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and I think maybe one at Stevens Point. Um, but she said, you know, uh, nobody wants to go to Wisconsin-Stevens Point, or even maybe Wisconsin-Milwaukee, although they have a baseball team. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm really, he's, he's really a nice guy, and I'm afraid that nobody's going to show up. Would, would you drop by and agree to be interviewed by him just so his feelings won't be hurt? Can you imagine? So no, I, said, I really sure. can't imagine. <laughs> Not at all. So no, this was a situation nobody would want to go to Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Uh-huh. I don't know. We'd get, you know, we'd get half the country. Yeah, no, uh, coming out of graduate school, applying for that job. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. So, uh, how did you get the job at Brown? Then explain. Explain. You have an interesting story about that. Well, it, it was it was really quite quite simple. Um, I thought, I thought, frankly, that Dan Field was going to get the Brown job because he he knew some people on the faculty, and I I knew nobody. Uh, I didn't I didn't even have to give a job talk. I I came down, met people in the department, had lunch with the chair, and uh, I think I only had Pipes's letter. Uh, and uh, after a while, they offered me the job. <laughs> And uh, so I, I said, don't, I don't oh, want. Anybody, and, I was going to say I don't want anybody listening to think that it works that way anymore. Oh no, God, <laughs> God no! This is another world. And I, I was I was also offered a a uh, an assistant professorship at Harvard. But by this time, I knew that these were people. There was no possible opportunity for tenure there. Uh, this was a job which was not really very different from from graduate student. Uh, and Pipes said when he told me that he was going to offer, that I was to be offered the job, he said, it would be wonderful. Uh, I'd like to get you and Dan Field uh, as as, assist, as instructors, and you can take sections in, in my 100-level in my course. And I thought to myself, Providence, here I come. Yeah, right, yeah. So uh, you you um, you take off to Providence. One thing I'm interested in knowing is that uh, what what was the pressure like at that time to uh, publish? You had to publish something to get tenure, correct? And so you need to publish oh, and yes. teach. Yeah. So talk a little oh, bit about that. You have to publish and teach. Yeah. But that's what I wanted to do anyway. I I mean, uh, teaching is is a very complicated craft, and, and it and it makes personal demands and as well as intellectual ones and has status and um, I was I was eager to to be I, I I by this time I realized that I had benefited from from good teaching uh, I hadn't received all that much of it at Harvard but I had had some and mentoring and I I was eager to 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 teach myself I'd I'd been a tutor in the history and literature program at Harvard so I had some experience. And I liked having students. Mm-hmm. So the idea of teaching and writing was a- appealing to me. But I, I, knew, I knew very well that I, that I had to produce uh, at least one book and probably two for, for tenure. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was, I was ready. I, I don't think that the, the standards have been upped a little bit, but I don't think they're essentially different today mm-hmm. from what they were then. Mm-hmm. And so tell us about your first book then. 
Well, of course, what I wanted to do was to to follow in the footsteps of uh, of Melia and Valitsky. So I took my dissertation, <clears throat> and I tried to I tried to do for Kirievsky what Melia had done for Alexander Herzen, but uh, Melia's book was altogether a, a bigger book than mine. Uh, and I, I didn't have the intellectual reach that he had. Uh, and uh, I now, over the passage of time, can see things that I, I should have done uh, to make it a, a little more like Malia's book, or a little more comparable, I should say, not like. Uh, but it was a it was a it was a decent monograph, and it was published in the in the series at the Russian Research Center. Uh, did with Harvard University Press. Uh, so, uh, but as I as I began to tear myself away from it emotionally, I recognized with some disappointment that it was a smaller and more monographic thing than uh, than I had hoped when I started out. And meanwhile, Andrzej Wolitsky had gone on and was proving to be so productive in the field uh, that uh, he. He really was doing with this period of Russian intellectual and cultural history of what I had hoped to do. Uh, so I continued for a while to follow in his footsteps, and then I began to think of ways to try to break break out of his influence, which had been entirely beneficial, but I wanted to to, to be more my own person. Mm-hmm. I see. So um, we are... Uh, do, do they give you tenure on the basis of this book, or do you write Young Russia? Uh, yeah. I, I had I had a, a torso of Young Russia, mm-hmm. and so we, I did get tenure on the basis of of uh, European and Muscovite, and what became Young Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I also uh, had uh, almost a contract with Viking Press. Mm-hmm. And so, on that basis, I, I did get tenure. Mm-hmm. And how did, how did you? Uh, there's an interesting story about how you came to write Young Russia. I should also say the subtitle of Young Russia, or After the Colon, is the Genesis of Russian Radicalism in the 1860s. This book comes out in the 1980s, and it reflects, I guess, your experience in the 1960s and 70s yeah. in the United States. Yeah, I I had a, a sort of mixed experience with 60s radicalism. I I went into the 60s with high hopes, and I I was never. Uh, never a conservative, uh, but I, I guess in, in some way or other, uh, I realized that there was a utopian and even a crazy side to 60s radicalism, uh, and I experienced that indirectly. I was never in favor of days of rage or anything of that sort. But after I after the 60s were over. I decided that it would be really fun to write a book which would compare the American 1960s with the Russian 1860s. Mm-hmm. And I and I, I, I had another book that I, I planned to do, uh, which was really on, on how Russia uh, moved into extreme radicalism. Uh, in in the uh, in the in the 1860s, and the the two the two books began separately, uh, and at a certain point, for, perhaps for reasons of time, they became the same book. So I ha- I had two parallel projects which eventually came out 
as a as a single entity. And I think uh, the the book was not entirely seamless. And and if if you if anybody cared to probe, they 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 could see the origins <laughs> the origins in in my left hand and my right hand. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. No, I, I think. I, I, Go ahead. Oh, incidentally, let me just say, originally I planned to call the book Ideology and Radical Consciousness in uh, 19th century Russia. And my stress on radical consciousness uh, was not something that the publisher particularly liked. (laughs) So I was told that I should not call it that. but in retrospect, later on, uh, studies of radical consciousness became a significant and well-recognized aspect of the profession. And several people that I told this to said, boy, you would have gotten, the book would have gotten much better reviews if you called it ideology, ideology and radical consciousness. Mm-hmm. Young Russia, who, who, who could tell from that what it was about? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it speaks to the interest among the American public or within the American public uh, towards things Russian, that it was actually published by a very large trade press. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this was this would. I don't know how you would do this today. I mean, maybe you could. I don't. I don't know. I mean, I guess Orlando. I guess. I guess what you would do, what you would do, would be to go to school with somebody who became an editor there, <laughs> and then you would remember that you knew her, uh, and then you would write her a letter, and you would recall your adventures in Europe together and what great friends you've been, and then you would say, any interest in a little manuscript that I'm working on? Yeah, that's probably... And so on and so on and so on. That that really is how it happened. I I knew uh, Elizabeth Niebuhr-Sifton from college, Uh and we'd we'd always been friends, and uh, we'd spent some time in Europe together, and she was and is one of the great editors in American publishing, <laughs> uh, especially academic publishing. She was a fabulous editor, and she cut about 20% of my manuscript yeah. out. Yeah. And yeah, that's uh, good. that was uh, enormously helpful. Mm-hmm. And so she edited it, and she worked for at that time for Viking. Uh, so that, that was an enormous piece of, of good fortune for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things, while we're kind of in the confessional mode about these things a little bit, uh, one of the parts of the book that I really liked was the entire discussion of domestic relations around your house. And you mentioned something that um, I had heard about a long time ago and I had never read, but I had a chance to go back to it, and it's called The Politics of Housework, which I yeah. recommend I recommend everybody read because it's still very clever today. It really is oh, very yeah. good. So talk a little bit about your kind of you, – you're I, 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 you, you kind of conflicted about – your liberalism and what went on at home? Well, you know, um, when you're a student, um, politics are, it's a matter of sort of late night bullshit (laughs) and, and sort of talking and arguments and, uh, professions of enthusiasm and support and, uh, generosity and, not liking reactionaries and so on, but when it, when it's when when you actually get married, God, if if you're gonna if you're gonna be fair, you have to take on a lot of work that you don't want to do, and you know of course if you'd asked me whether I knew that I would have said 
I would have gotten annoyed and said, of course I know it. But, you know, I didn't know it. Because you, you don't know you don't know about what living out your beliefs is until you actually have to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, so yeah, we had we had uh, conflicts, and my 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 wife was she wanted she wanted time, and I wanted time, and uh, neither of us wanted to have uh, somebody in to vacuum our house, but neither of us wanted to take on the vacuuming. So eventually we, we we got somebody to come in and clean the house once a week, yeah, yeah. and you know, and we, we we had to live out the whole. I, I was passionately in favor of fairness, uh, but it was really much more difficult than I thought when when I had to be fair in my own life rather than just being fair in an argument. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I can attest to that difficulty. I have experienced it in my well, own life. Yeah, yeah, we 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 all know that, but I I think. It, it's just part of, you know, it's really part of growing up. But growing up in, in the 60s was, uh, had unusual challenges to it. Mm-hmm. I can remember um, when some kid who I had known all, he was one of my freshman advisees, and he was a kind of a nice young guy from rural North Carolina somewhere, but he became radicalized within a matter of weeks at Brown. And I remember him busting into my office hours and saying, come on, Professor Gleason. And I think he still called me Professor Gleason, not Tom. Uh, we're, we're going out and do guerrilla theater in East Providence. <laughs> and I said, what do you, what do you mean we're going to do guerrilla theater? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, we're going to lie down and we're going to be Asians. Uh, we're going to be Vietnamese who've been bombed by the Americans. And I said, what do you mean we're going to lie down? He says, we're going to lie down in the parking lot. And I said, "How will how will they how will people of East Providence know we've been bombed?" And he said, "Oh, we're going to pour ketchup on you." <laughs> and that's so that's how that's how they'll know. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I thought, I feel my idealizing my my idealism ebbing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's. Uh... And I said, "Ma'am, I've got office hours." Yeah. Right. I got to see these students. I, I, right. I, uh, I can't go to East Providence and do guerrilla theater today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Check, check me tomorrow, and uh, maybe I'll find some old clothes. I, you know, I didn't have that many clothes right. at this point. Right. The idea of pouring ketchup on one of my few good shirts didn't appeal. As, with ketchup on, you mean they, they might have thought you were a French fry or something? So I don't, I don't know how that. Yes, that would have been possible. I was, I was, I was. Skinny enough to seem like a French fry at that stage. I, I wish I wish I could say the same today. So let's let's move on very briefly to um, your stint at the Kennan Institute. I've been there myself. Um, uh, how did you come to get this? I guess we used to call these things gigs, but I don't know if people say that anymore. How did oh, you get I this still, gig? I still say gig. I'm hopelessly trapped in the slang of 50 years ago. Um, well, I, I, as I told you, James Billington had been my tutor at Harvard, and I'd done my thesis under his auspices. And when Fred Starr moved on to Tulane, um, Billington gave me a buzz and, in effect, asked me if I'd like the job. <clears throat> and he was the director then of the Woodrow Wilson Center, of course, before moving on to become a librarian of Congress. And it came at a perfect time for me since I'd finished uh, I'd finished uh, Young Russia. And my wife had finished a stint 
training, getting trained in museum studies, and she hoped that she would be able to work for something in Washington, as she, as she was able to. She worked for the uh, Historic Preservation Commission. Uh, so it seemed like a, a very good time, and of course, uh, I was I was actually quite scared uh, about doing it because my spoken Russian has never been tremendously good, and I had I was somewhat in awe of Fred Starr. But it seemed uh, too good an opportunity to pass up, so I said yes, and took uh, as it turned out two and a half years leave from Brown. I was lucky to get that much time and went to Washington and administered under the uh, aegis of the Wilson Center. I administered the Cannon Institute for those two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And did you enjoy that work? Oh, it was harrowing, but I enjoyed it. Yes, no, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and once once I sort of learned the ropes in particular, uh, I, I thought it was I thought it was a lot of fun, and I liked I liked being a host, and I, I learned how to I learned how to do conferences, and I learned how to how to make discussions work. I learned a lot of practical things that were also very helpful when I came back to academia, and I enjoyed the atmosphere of Washington. I enjoyed all the politics, and uh, I, I liked uh, living in Washington again. And, you know, there were a lot of little sort of psychological perks, things that um, were, were, were nice. Uh, the, some of the analysts at the Chinese embassy supposed that the, uh, the secretary, as, as we were called, and, and of the Kennan Institute, everybody at the Smithsonian who had, a, had some sort of a position of authority was called a secretary, and starting with the secretary of the Smithsonian itself, Dylan Ripley. And they, they imagined that I was privy to all sorts of secrets. And I didn't tell them that I had no access to classified information. I knew people at the CIA, but I was never briefed by any, no one ever dreamed of bring, briefing me on anything. And I, 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 I knew only what I got from reading the press. But uh, once a month, I would go over to the Chinese embassy, and a number of these second secretaries and other people would take me to lunch, and they would call me Polar Bear Watcher. And uh, it was great great for my ego, and I, I never told them uh, really how meager my intelligence sources actually were. Uh, but it was, it was lots of fun. So did you consider at that point a career in administration? Did you consider not going back I, to Brown? Or I did, I did. I, I considered it very seriously. But uh, one of the things that I also discovered there was that days spent in endless meetings and doing fundraising uh, were really not how I wanted to spend most of my time. So uh, I, I think I, I, although I thought very hard about it, considered it seriously, I was never on the verge of doing anything but going back into academia. I see. So you go back to Brown. Um, you know, we've taken up a huge amount of your time. We're already a little bit over the amount of time that I allotted for this. Are you still okay to continue a little bit? Yes, sure. Okay, good enough. Um, let me ask you uh, a kind of open-ended question. You, you've been in the industry, the Russian studies industry, for a long, long time. H how has it changed from the moment you uh, entered it uh, to the present? And feel free to go on for as long as you like. Well, you know, you gave me, I think, a little too much 
if credit may not be the precise word, I was not really among the, the sort of founding fathers. I was not present at the creation. I really was among the, the early students that the creators had. And so uh, Adam Ulam and, and even Richard Pipes and certainly Merle Feinsot at Harvard had a real relationship to the early days and to the funding, the first funding, and all of those things that David Engerman has written about so well in his book. I, I came in uh, at a slightly later stage uh, when all of that work was really uh, had had really been at least uh, set in motion, if not completely achieved. Uh, but of course, it, it, it was it was the Cold War was from from my point of view at least very exciting, and uh, it was dangerous, and it it gave a spice to to scholarship that I, I think it doesn't quite have now. Uh, maybe maybe it was ersatz spice, um, but nevertheless there was an excitement and a sense of danger. Uh, there were people who defected, and then questions of whether you would help them or not, and uh, whether conceivably you might lose access to Soviet sources if you did. Uh, that was something that uh, plagued Dan Field, for example. And and just generally there was a kind of tension and a sense of being at the center of things that I think Russian studies uh, has has now thoroughly lost. So it seems to me it's it's been it's a much more ordinary field of study now uh, than it was then. But still, not without some controversy. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about the way the image of the Soviet Union has changed. And this is something you know a lot about. From the 1950s to the 19, let's say, 90s, you wrote a book about totalitarianism, the idea thereof, and the application of this idea to the Soviet Union. And I just kind of wondered what you thought about the, the change in the way in which academics uh, see the Soviet Union now, of course, receding into the past. Well, you know, the 20th century was a century of horrors. And I think it's going to it's, it's going to go down as one of the worst centuries in, in European and, and American history. And I think there was a, a tendency uh, among lots of people to look for to look for for ways to describe that. And there was always the possibility of of, of demonization taking place. Uh, because so many of the things that that, that happened, and so, so many of the people uh, being destroyed, led led one to 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 want to 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 get us to, beyond the ordinary explanations for uh, criminal and lunatic behavior among among men and women. And I think um, the vocabulary people sought for ways of understanding Hitler and Stalin that would do justice to the, the sense of the extraordinary that, that they created. Uh, so I, I, I was always interested in how people describe things. Uh, so I just decided that I would, would write a book uh, about this phenomenon, and I decided to, to do a study. I had some encouragement from Oxford University Press uh, to do a study of the term totalitarianism. And the idea of the book was to understand how how people saw what they were experiencing and the ways in which they tried to create a vocabulary which would be adequate to 
to to the experiences that they were living through. Uh, so I, I think I think that was that was very important. Uh, now it, it seems to me, um, obviously, this has all been much deflated. I remember a remark that Adam Ulam made to me not long before he died. He said in his inimitable way with that heavy Polish accent, Gleason, I don't enjoy studying Russia anymore. It's too much like studying Argentina. <laughs> and I, and I, I don't, Adam was politically incorrect to a fault, and I, I don't want to join him in casting aspersions on Argentinians or Argentines. But basically, uh, Russia appears, whatever else may be the case, to be a much smaller place now, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's 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 still in some ways a very unpleasant political culture. But I think it's 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 the aspirations have shrunk. I, I simply don't buy into these people uh, who think that. Uh, there's a danger of, of any kind of a return to something like the Soviet Union, or who think that Putin is the most dangerous man in Europe, uh, things that have been said to me by various journalists and academics. Uh, so I think uh, there's there's no possibility now of, of a nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States. Uh, and uh, I think <clears throat> difficult as the situation in Eastern and Central Europe can be, uh, it's, it's now we're back to what I would consider to be something of approaching uh, normality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's, it's a very, very different world now. And uh, nobody, nobody thinks of the apocalypse, although they still do remember the days when you, if you were stabbed with an umbrella tip um, <laughs> between the second and the third floor in the London apartment, you could be dead the next morning. Right, yeah, right. So um, I, I guess the question that I, I want to ask is, as a sometime historian of the Soviet Union, how the scholarship that was produced in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, even into the 80s about the Soviet Union, and much of it did use the totalitarian model or thought of the Soviet Union as totalitarian? How, how has it fared, in your opinion? Well, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that's fortunate is that if you're a historian as opposed to a political scientist, your, your choice of categories becomes, and, and, and your theorizing becomes less significant. So it seems to me you can subscribe to conventions of vocabulary, uh, for example, using the term totalitarian, uh, which which I, on, on the whole, don't uh, approve of, to put it in a very bourgeois way. Uh, but if you, if, you write, if you write good history, and if you're careful about what you're saying, if you think deeply, uh, the fact that you uh, use a, a term like that perhaps doesn't make all that much difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, Merle Feinsod, uh, for example, to take a, a, a person from the older generation, used the term, uh, but that that did not affect uh, <clears throat> the the greatness of a book like Smolensk under Soviet rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Adam Ulam, whatever you judge his achievement to have been, used the term. Robert Conquest not only used it, but... Uh, defended it intellectually, and so did William Odom. 
uh, all of those people were uh, had scholarly achievement of, of, of some kind. So uh, I, I think, uh, even though I would not use the term myself, uh, you could indeed use it. And uh, if you if you were <clears throat> careful about other things that you did. Now, as far as the as far as the term itself goes, I, I was very interested in and conscious of uh, as the Soviet Union came to an end. The arguments that were going on between between the totalitarian using right wing scholars like Pipes and Conquest and to some extent Ulam, and the people on the left, the people who were largely identified with social history, uh, Moshe Levine, Sheila Fitzpatrick, and others, uh, and it seemed to me I was very much on their side uh, in in the debate. Uh, but uh, I think uh, my, my mind was changed a little bit by watching the Soviet Union come to an end. I think uh, people uh, who took took our view, which is sort of the left view, I guess, were uh, really were, or at least ought to have been surprised at the ease with which the Soviet Union disappeared. Uh, not that we... It can't be explained, and many people have worked on explaining it. Some of them very persuasively. But I think if it if it if it grew as deeply in the soil of of Russia and Russian culture, political culture, as we had thought, uh, it would have been a little harder uh, to have it disappear uh, so rapidly and so definitively. Uh, so, uh, in a way, I think the people who believe that it could be that politics were something that could be imposed from above by conspirators. Uh, I still don't really believe that that's true exactly, but I think there's more to it uh, than I would have been willing to admit prior to 1991. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that it speaks very well of you that uh, new experiences and, um, shall we even say, data can change someone's mind. I think that's why we're <laughs> academics, because, you know, new things happen and we change our minds. I'm not sure everybody does that. I, I don't a lot, but sometimes. I, I, I don't do it a lot, but I think, you know, it seemed to me that this was an occasion for it. Yeah, no, it seems like it was. Well, you know, as I said, we've taken up a huge amount of your time. I've gone much longer with this than uh, probably your patience allows. Um, let me ask you our traditional final question on New Books sure. in History, Tom, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, as, as, as you know from, from reading the book, uh, I now have Parkinson's, and that has cut down on my ability to undertake major new work. Uh, reading is, is, is harder now, takes more energy. Uh, I'm going to have brain surgery in a couple of months, and I think that's going to give me uh, some strength back. Uh, but I'm, I, I'm, I'm really not, I, I don't feel able to undertake a major piece of historical research at this point. So uh, I, I've written some articles, uh, some of them on what it's like to have Parkinson's, and I'm still doing some teaching and I still have a couple of graduate students. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, I, I, I don't see myself as really able to, uh, to undertake a major new book. I, I published, a, a, about six months before the memoir, I published a collection of essays by various people, some of them my students, uh, 
called the Blackwell Companion to Russian History. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is probably my my sign-off on, on major books. I, 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 I got some Russian contributions and translated them, uh, as I say, some of my students and some of the most distinguished people in the field contributed to it. Uh, so I think uh, uh, if, if I were to put it in my usual narcissistic way, <laughs> I might say uh, I've, I've done what I wanted to do. <laughs> I don't think that's narcissistic at all. It doesn't, doesn't well, sound narcissistic to my ears. Um, and I hope that uh, you, you haven't done everything that you will do, and I'm pretty sure you haven't actually. Um, although, you know, Parkinson's, that's a, that's a, that's a challenge. And, uh, yeah, it is a challenge. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I was reading the book, I was, you know, saying to myself, yeah, that's, that's a lot to do in and of itself. And so that I hope, I hope your surgery goes well and I, I hope that everything goes well for you and your family. And, and I want to say, um, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a great pleasure and honor for me to talk to you for this past hour and 15 minutes. It's, it's been a lot of fun, Marshall. And you, uh, and you may not think I'm narcissistic, but you've, you've, encouraged, <laughs> you've encouraged something which I find very like narcissism. And, and thank you for doing so. Absolutely my pleasure. All right, Tom, take care. You, you too. Bye-bye. Right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Tom Gleason about his new memoir, A Liberal Education. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.